Hello, I'm Hardin Coleman, and you're listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. As Lindsay Barquet and I embark upon the second semester of this podcast, it is impossible not to have interpersonal violence, polarization, and the failure to negotiate peaceful resolution of conflict all at the front of our mind. From shootings in Buffalo, Ivaldi, and elsewhere, to failure to refine bipartisan solutions to economic and social challenges, to the war in the Ukraine, it is hard not to fear for all our children and the world they will inherit. At the same time, it is important to remind ourselves about those people and community efforts that are, are focused on hope. There are a great many people who are working hard to create caring communities in which all children have equal opportunities to flourish. Communities in which there's a focus on character development, not only in terms of what it means for each individual person, but also in terms of what it means to efforts to create environments that embrace and serve everyone well. In this semester, we want to share the story of individuals inside and outside of educational settings who are using their talents and passions to support positive youth development with a particular focus on equity. If you want to follow this podcast and get more information about the participants, you can do so online at ccsr.substack.com. We also want to hear your thoughts about what brings you hope. Please leave your comments online or email me at harden at bu.edu. So great, Leah, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, what we would like to start out is learning a little bit about what you're doing, who you are, and what you're doing. So if you want to give me your name and your position at investors and and a little bit of how you got to this role. Absolutely. Well, one, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I love the idea of this podcast, and I'm excited to be here today. My name is Aaliyah Werner. I'm the Director of Strategic School Support at Advessers, which is a Boston-based school improvement nonprofit. Our mission is to advance um, equitable, meaningful education so that all Boston schools are preparing all students to activate their power and shape their future. And how we define power is students having a sense of ownership over their own assets, abilities, and agency. So in my role as Director of Strategic School Support, I oversee our Racial Equity Seed Fund initiative. And really the goal of that is to build an action-based learning community um, with a variety of different constituents that are working in the education space, um, school leaders, educators, district um, leaders, nonprofit folks, students and families, all working on really deeply understanding the root causes of racial inequities in our school buildings, and then coming together and developing action ideas around those. Um, I think a core component of the Racial Equity Seed Fund Initiative, which I know Hardin, you are are one of our core partners there, um, is really that it's grounded in this elevation of street data. So really focusing on um, elevating the lived experiences of those most impacted impacted by racial inequities, which we identify as students and families. And so it goes beyond just, you know, listening to students and families, but helping to position them um, and building structures so that they have decision-making powers and they're the solution designers to those action ideas. You know, you've used the word a couple of times that, are, that I think a lot of people are uh, finding um, it, it, it may become one of these trigger words or confusing words. Use the word equity. And so for you and investors, the people you work with, when you to think of equity, what does that mean to you? Um, and, and how do you define it? What does it mean? 
Yeah, that's a great question and I completely agree with you. Um, for me and at investors, equity goes beyond just access to opportunities. Um, but when we really think about achieving equity in education, demographic statistics information should no longer be predictive of student outcomes and opportunities, period. Um, and so that's like that end goal vision that I think you know everyone in Boston is collectively striving towards. Um, and then there's some delineation between like equity and racial equity. And I think also yeah. some confusion between equity, justice, diversity, inclusion, and like, how do you differentiate all of those? Um, I, I think the word equality in there too. And the, 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 yeah. Equality and the confusing. So let me, so, so, and this is a distinction that, so there are outcomes we want, we, we think are reasonable and in a caring community uh, that really lifted up the well-being of all children, there'd be these outcomes and one of them you suggested is that you wouldn't be able to differentiate outcomes by race and economic background. Yes. And I would also add, you know, um, your language status, if you're an English language learner, mm -hmm. whether ability, abilities, um, mm -hmm. other demographic mm -hmm. information as well. And so in that context, is equity part of the process or is it our, or is it part of the outcome? That, that's where I get confused the way we use the word, the word equity. Is it a, process variable that if we're equitable, we will achieve this outcome. It's part of the system we have to create. Or is it also one of the outcomes we want? We want an equitable system. Is that an outcome? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, for me personally, I see it more on the outcome side, but there's mm -hmm. equitable processes to get to those mm -hmm. outcomes. Mm -hmm. So when I think about equity, I think about the structures, the barriers, um, the distribution of power within our system, um, the oppression that certain students, young people and families are feeling, especially mm -hmm. families of color. Um, so that's how I see equity. And then I see maybe it's more like the justice lens that gets more at the process, right? When I yeah. see and think about racial justice, it's about addressing conflict, um, redistributing mm -hmm. that power, um, positioning those most marginalized and those most impacted with decision-making power. Um, so maybe the justice part is more the process and the equity. Yeah. Is so how did, you get to, how did you get into this work? What drew you to it? And then the many choices you would have had, what drew you to this type of work? I love questions that start with whys. I'm going to give you my short why because mm -hmm. I could go on for a long time. Um, but I think, you know, it's my interest in education and racial equity in general really began in high school. Um, I became really aware of the inequities in my own high school um, that I was experiencing. So my high school was a large high school, urban high school, majority students of color. Yet when we looked at who was in AP courses, honor courses, who was getting into the top colleges and universities, there were clear gaps, um, opportunity gaps, academic gaps. And I really questioned why. Um, on the other side of it too, when I looked at, you know, who was represented in our student government, who was participating in clubs and activities, most of the people of color were only on the sports teams and recognized on sports teams. But that representation and their voice was not captured um, in many of the mm -hmm. after school activities that our high school offered. And, you know, for me, that was like, why, why is this happening? So that why, um, I think really sparked my interest in education. And then when I went to college, uh, I became very acutely aware in the first two weeks 
that I did not get the education experience that many of my surrounding peers had, mm-hmm. particularly in mathematics and writing instruction. Um, and I had to go, you know, at Boston College do tutoring for the first six months because even though I was taking AP and honor courses at my high school, it did not prepare me for the level of rigor mm-hmm. that I was experiencing. So that was another window. Um, and I think the third reason is I was really fortunate enough to have some incredible mentors and educators and coaches in my life that really helped me um, get through some of the challenging circumstances that I grew up with um, and really were influential to me, inspired me and believed in me. And so I think both of my own education experiences and then just seeing what the power of an educator can have on someone really inspired me to go into teaching. And then once I got there, right, I think this is kind of be probably a familiar path of a lot of educators, right? It's many teachers in Boston go in knowing the systemic barriers that are set up against people of color, particularly in our education system. And it's one thing to know, and then another thing to feel it and see mm-hmm, it today mm-hmm. with students that yep, you yep. deeply care about and love, right? And then that why just kept coming bigger and becoming bigger and bigger. And that's how I really got into um, being passionate about how do we change the system? Yep. And so that led to like community organizing, grad schools, research, all these other paths. But that's like the short version of my why. But well, you, you, you said something that, that um, um, I think of, one of my privileges is I get to talk with people across broad spectrums from economic, age, uh, skills, talent. Um, and this theory of the system can change is not universally held. Now, I, I know I'm hearing a lot and particularly some of the, um, 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 you know, 30, 30-something, 40-something people that I'm engaged with uh, who will say, well, the system is, is it's just a failed system. And we just have to figure out how to get out of the way when it collapses on us. And what are we going to do about that? Changing it, I can serve kids in it, but changing it is unrealistic. But you talk about taking systems. Help us help me understand where you get your hope that the system could be changed. I love this question. Um, And I want to be transparent. I've had many moments of wrestling with, you know, sometimes periods of hopelessness around changing the system. Mm -hmm. And so I I think, you know, for me, what keeps me really grounded is um, deeply understanding the conditions that result in system change and seeing and studying and understanding how that affects other uh, sectors outside of education as well. Mm -hmm. And seeing examples of that when you see it, right? Seeing is believing. Um, So when I look at system change, it's it's really complex, right? I think too often in education, we focus on just a layer of policies, practices, and resource flows, but we don't get at the other layers of system change that are more influential and lead to transformative change. So we look at like relational change between relationships and connections between people. What are the power dynamics at play? And then I think the biggest thing that impacts uh, system change is mental models, right? Those are your habits of thought, the deeply held beliefs and assumptions. Sometimes we take them for granted, but they influence the way we operate in the world, what we do Mm -hmm. and how we talk. And so if we don't focus on the mental models, but I think we should focus on the mental models first, right? We can't get to building the relationships and connections or power dynamics. We can't get to changing the policies, practices um, in a sustainable, substantial way. So how, 
do you address the challenges to get people to engage in re-examining the mental models, particularly as you work in a small not-for-profit among a lot of big not-for-profits in a city uh, where you have this major political uh, issues between the state, the city, the school district. So how, how do you approach this? Or what are your challenges to getting people to address their mental models in this, from this perspective? That's another great question. And that was one of my challenges that I listed. Um, I think we're still very much figuring it out. Um, From my experience, so what I've seen is the power of the seeing and the doing. Once people actually experience, then it starts to really shift the ways people think and operate in a school. Mm -hmm. So I think of an example of, and I know you know this, but in our racial equity seed fund, like part of the core component of that work is positioning students as decision makers within a school building Um, and and moving beyond, you know, in-cast data, classroom attendance, classroom grades, but really getting into asking students, what are your experiences here? Mm And we saw many examples this year in this cohort of, you know, just asking students those questions and putting them in positions where they can make decisions and share what they're truly thinking started to shift the ways in which adults thought about student leadership and empowerment led to then like structural changes in the school building for the following year. So, you know, we had two examples of schools who completely redesigned their schedule to embed you know, focus blocks where once a quarter they're doing um, intensive like focus interviews with all the students in their home languages to elevate mm-hmm. student voice. And so I think that's a small example of like once you start to do something and you see the power of it, then that can influence some of the other practices and structures within the school building. So I hear you suggest that if we really become student centered in our thinking and empowering the student's voice, we will start driving system change in a, in a, in a regular and, and uh, productive manner. So what-, what And I would, add, I would add to that family as well. Family, huh? So what holds adults in the system back from doing that? Makes sense, right? Sounds like fun. I mean, engaging kids, I, I came to this field because I love being around young, bright, engaged minds and, and watching them grow. What holds us back? I, w- I would love to know that answer. I have some <laughs> thoughts. I have some thoughts. Yeah, well, about I, I, want to hear your <laughs> I think, you know, systems have a way of operating repeatedly in the same way over and over and over again. Um, you become used to the way things work. You become used to who holds power, who's making decisions and to challenge that um, and to challenge that when you as an educator or a school leader are so mm-hmm. strapped for capacity and time is difficult. Um, to change those ways of working that are so embedded in our system. Um, I think that leads to another challenge, right? Like if just, and this shouldn't be new to anyone in education, like our school leaders and our educators have too much on their plates, just too much. They they are literally the heroes of our nation. um, And we keep asking them to do more without providing the supports, without removing the barriers for them to Mm -hmm. do that work. And we just add on expectations and then that's, that's not fair. Yeah, yeah. So in that, what gives you hope? I, I think, you know, having the opportunity to work, and I'm, I feel so blessed for this, but having the opportunity to work with such a large number of schools and different organizations, all so passionate about driving racial equity, all so passionate about 
um, creating systems and structures that really empower students so that they can be themselves. Like that gives me hope of being in a space and, and we are all motivated and all driven by the same whys. There, there's power in that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna shift the conversation slightly because this is one of the um, um, narrative questions that we in the center, this the Center for Character Social Ability, are, are, are thinking a lot about and trying to address. In that, um, and, and we hear this in the political discourse as well, is that you, you clearly identified a belief in system change, the power of the system to both prevent uh, equity and the power of the system to create equity. And that that, that is worthwhile and willing to engage um, a variety of people in, in collaborative efforts to drive system change. There are many of us who believe that there's something about the personal character of leaders, of students that is central to this work as well, or maybe the center of the work. I mean, there's some people would say the individual development um, is, is, the, is the core of what we should be achieving. So when you think of character in your work, how does that, does that conversation come up? That thinking come up for you? Or is that not something, a conversation that's within the work that you're doing or the people you're working with? That's a great question. I would say that the character came up a lot in my grad school experience when you focus mm -hmm. on what are the qualities of a leader, you know, studying mm -hmm. case settings, that, but in my actual work today, not as much, but you mm -hmm. see elements of character, a through line through all the work that we do. And mm -hmm. so, you know, one example I think of is to do this work, you need to be an excellent listener. Um, yeah. You need to listen to those most impacted and that I think is at the core of everything that we do. If we listen yeah. more, we're yeah. going to get to the solutions. Yeah. And so I think it, although it's not explicitly named, I think, you know, the elements of developing that character is there. Another way yeah. I see, it, you know, servant leadership. I think many people yeah. in education yeah. strive yeah. to be a servant leader, right? Those are, those are character traits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, but in that, I hear also hear this ethic of care, that to, to listen to others, you really need to at some level care about others. Absolutely. And willing to do that in the tough moments when it's easier to say, well, we've done it this way before, or it's more efficient in this way. But if I care for others, I may have to slow my roll and change what I'm doing. Is that a fair, from your experience, is that something you see happening? Absolutely. And I see it all the time, especially with our school leaders and our educators. Um, you know, I, I think exactly what you said, you care is also taking that step back, um, mm -hmm. but it's also admitting and knowing when you're at fault, it's admitting when you make made a mistake or brought yep. harm into a space and having yeah. the courage to address that with a group of people that you yeah. cause harm to is really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that takes character. Yes. To, to make, to make that, to, to own one's mistake in a public manner in a way that serves the community. That, that's a risky, scary um, aspect, but we don't get well-trained to no. at all. Uh, no. We're supposed to know. So if you were going to take a step back and say, okay, knowing what I know now, I've known what I know now five, 10 years ago, would you approach this work differently? And if so, in what way? And then also, what would you not change at all? Ah, that's a good one. I think, you know, thinking back to my classroom years um, and my 
training as an educator, so much of it was, yes, build your classroom culture, but like, here are the rules, here are the practices, mm-hmm. here are the policy, mm-hmm. here are the systems within our building. And I wish I had known that the importance of, you know, the transforming change happens with the mental models and relationships. I wish, you know, my first couple of years of teaching, I prioritized that. And later as an administrator mm-hmm. for school building, I prioritized that before implement, implementing new policies or practices within a school building. Um, uh-huh. So that's one thing. And then I think the other thing is, you know, self-care. You hear this all the time. Yeah. Everyone's like, you, you can't, you have to fill your own bucket first before you show up for others. But I think it gets difficult when you're operating in a way that is a servant leader, where it's not about you, it's about everyone else yeah. around you. Yeah. And you start to hold on to the, you know, mm-hmm. the traumas of your student, the traumas you're seeing in mm-hmm. school communities that you work with, and you keep pushing forward and you will hit a breaking point if you do not yep. practice self-care. And yep. so I heard that, but I never, I never did it. And now yeah. I'm really at a state where that is a huge priority of mine. And I've just seen the power of me practicing my own self-care, how much better I can show up in other spaces. That's a great, great gift to lots of people who who think that if I take time for myself, I'm taking it away from others. Yeah. And then, and then, as you say, they don't have what it takes to continue to give and the burnout. And we're seeing this, you know, across this educational spaces that people have given, we're already giving too much. The pandemic demanded more and finding a way to take care of themselves is really, really uh, uh a challenge. But before I let you go, I want to ask, what are the, and this is, I'm, I'm stealing sick, uh, shamelessly from Ezra Klein's podcast, but not what are the three things you would recommend reading, but what are the three podcasts or books or articles that you, as people kind of search for ways to uh, drive equity in their work in a way that's caring and fosters uh, uh, our ability to help children flourish, what are the three podcasts or books or, or movies that you would recommend that people uh, get a look at? Some of these are not going to surprise you, Harden. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm going to share them anyway, because I do think they're really groundbreaking. Um, I'm a reader, so most of mine are, are books. But um, I would say the first, and I know this is well known, um, but just I, I had to Google, like, what makes a classic? So I think this book is the classic in education now. Yeah. Cultivating Genius um, by Goldie Muhammad was, um, mm-hmm. I have seen that be transformative and shifting mental models and school cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, year mm-hmm. after year, I see the impact of that book um, and how that translates into a cl- individual classroom but a whole school setting. Um, and so Muhammad's Five Pursuits, Identity, Skills, Intellect, uh, Joy, and Criticality. And those yeah. joy and criticality pieces are like the game changers. Mm-hmm. Um, And so criticality focuses on advancing students' understanding of oppression, equity, and anti-racism, taking what they're learning and taking action on that. Um, So that book, I think, is going to be a classic forever in education. Highly recommend. Um, My favorite one, of course, is Street Data by Shane and Jamila Dugan. Um, Another, I think, you know, changemaker book that helps, I think too often we focus on, you know, that high level data without getting deep enough to understand the experiences of students and families most impacted. And this book gives you the ways in which you can do that and shows you the power of that. Um, mm-hmm. And then I recently went to uh, Common Ground Revisited, the play yeah. by the Huntington Theater Company. So I think that play was an excellent showcase of uh, Boston's history and education and really gets at the complex emotions um, 
during the 60s and 70s, you know, during the segregation movement. And, you know, it also helps you reflect on in many ways. I'm not going to say many ways. It is. Boston's more segregated now than it was during that time in the 60s and 70s. And so it it helps you reflect on like how much has changed and what hasn't changed. Um, Yeah. Really puts you in a place of empathy to really understand other people's experiences during that Mm -hmm. time. Well, thanks so much for sharing time. And and most importantly, thank you for the work that you do and to kind of work on our system so it's better able to take care of all our children. So I want to thank you for that work and for sharing your time with us. Likewise, Arden. Thank you so much. It was so great to be here. Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast is made possible with the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vise by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.